1: And I'm changing up the intro because I want to catch your attention. We are calling on any regular listeners, any super fans out there, to reach out to us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com. We want to loop you in to this small group of about 50 to 75 super listeners that we're going to be interacting with, surveying, chatting with, Skyping with, to try to get a sense of what it is you like and what it is we can do more of. How can we grow the show? How can we make it better for you? What do you want to hear? All these things. And it's not just going to be a take relationship. We've got giveaways, free books, gift cards, all types of fun stuff. And if you have a business or a website you're trying to get out in the world, we'll mention it on our show. But really, we're trying to connect with those that feel like this show is a consistent part of their life, that they're getting value out of, and they want to help make better. So if that's you, reach out to us, smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com. All right. Thanks so much. I appreciate that. Now, what are the goods we have for you today? Today on the show, we are interviewing Lisa Moscone, and we're talking about how to eat for your brain. Lisa is the author of the brand new book, Brain Food, The Surprising Science of Eating for Cognitive Power. I was really excited to have Lisa on because she is an expert in feeding our brain, and she really knows how to get down to the chemical level of food. So Lisa Moscone is the associate director of the Alzheimer's Prevention Clinic at Weill Cornell Medical College. She is also an adjunct faculty member in the Department of Psychiatry at NYU School of Medicine and in the Departments of Neurology and Nuclear Medicine at the University of Florence, Italy. Previously, she founded and was the director of the Nutrition and Brain Fitness Lab at New York University School of Medicine. She holds a dual PhD degree in neuroscience and nuclear medicine from the University of Florence, Italy, where she is from. Oh, and she's a board-certified integrative nutritionist and holistic healthcare practitioner. Wow, that's a bio. But I wanted to get it out there because she gets into the weeds just like we love it, just like we like to learn about And I believe she has the background, the knowledge, the multiple PhDs to back it up. And when it comes to food, there's so much out there. It's really important to talk to people we can trust. So we're going to be covering everything from why glucose isn't actually that bad for you. We're going to ask the question you all want to know. Are sweet potatoes healthy? What's the best food to eat for choline? What the hell is choline? Choline. All these really in-depth but interesting questions on how to make our brains and bodies perform at their peak. So let's get into it. We are at smartpeoplepodcast.com. Head on over, sign up for the newsletter. We've got some goods coming out. And please, again, reach out to us if you're a super fan or a longtime listener. We wanna connect with you and we will make it worth your while. Here we go. We are talking to Lisa Moscone on her new book, Brain Food, The Surprising Science of Eating for Cognitive Power enjoy. Lisa, first, thank you so much for being on the show.
2: Hi, thank you for having me.
1: We're going to talk about things uncovered in your book, pretty new, brand new book. Congratulations on that. That's Brain Food, The Surprising Science of Eating for Cognitive Power. But let's start here. You have an extensive list of credentials. Tell, yeah. us, tell us about all the schooling you've done. You know, what, what got <laughs> you to this point?
2: <laughs> yeah, well, that's okay. So I'm Italian. First of all, full disclosure, I was born and raised in Florence in Italy, and I went to school in Italy. So I went to the university there, and we do five years degrees. There is no bachelor or master. You just go in for the fall five years. And I did um, neuroscience and experimental psychology. And then I did a year of training in neurology and psychiatry. And then I started a PhD program. It's a dual PhD actually in neuroscience and nuclear medicine. And nuclear medicine is code for uh, a very specific branch of radiology where you use radioactive isotopes on top of standard medical imaging, to really look at uh, function, functionality, and biochemistry of any organ in the body. But I obviously I I do brains, mm-hmm. so I do brain imaging. And then I moved to New York, and I I finished my PhD at NYU, New York University at the School of Medicine. And then I, um, I was hired, by the way, as a faculty member. So I was an, an assistant professor there in the Department of Psychiatry, and I was in charge of the Family History of Alzheimer's Research Program at NYU. And that's when I realized that for all the biology and all the genetics and all the biochemistry I had studied, what I really needed to understand was nutrition because your lifestyle is so important for the health of your brain. And so I went back to school and I studied. Um, I'm now an integrated nutritionist, but mostly, and we were just talking about that, I think what I realized is that, yes, that's true, I never studied nutrition formally during my PhD or at the university, but I had so much chemistry I studied so much chemistry, and really, nutrition is chemistry. So that's something I never fully realized or appreciated until I, I started looking into diet and nutrition, and specifically in brain nutrition, nutrition for the brain.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And then I moved to Cornell, while Cornell, where I'm now uh, I'm, I'm the associate director of the Alzheimer's Prevention Clinic, in the Department of Neurology. I'm also a professor of neurology and neuroscience. And what we do is really to combine standard medical care optimized for Alzheimer's prevention, and that really includes uh, lifestyle modifications and interventions as well. So, diet, physical activity, intellectual stimulation, stress reduction, but also vascular risk management is really important.
1: So it, it, you encapsulate kind of all of the lifestyle things in, in this role.
2: Yes. Yeah. Yes. There's the biology, but there's also um, behavior, you know, how you, how you live your life and the fact that your choices really play a big, big role in the health of your brain.
1: Sure. And I think, I think that idea is really coming to the forefront. I think most people now fully understand that. And that's why I wanted to have you on because I wanted to go really in depth from somebody who's been studying this for so long. But one of my favorite things to do on this show is to to go all the way back and ask some early on questions. How do you think your upbringing coming up in Italy? How do you think your upbringing affected or impacted your trajectory leading you to where you are today, which is really food, epigenetics, things like that?
2: It's It certainly had a, a big impact on me. I am So when I was doing my PhD and I started working in Alzheimer's prevention, uh, my grandmother started showing signs of dementia. And that's why I really felt that I I really wanted to, to work in the field. And then I moved to New York to, you know, just to have more opportunities for growth professionally. And I just was not prepared. For the American diet, <laughs> I was not. It was very shocking for me. I, I pretty much I grew up following a Mediterranean style diet, and you know tons of veggies and fresh fruit. Everything is organic. You don't need to look for organic produce. Everything mm-hmm. is just you know naturally organic. And then clean water, no soda. You eat fish. You you have grains. You know healthy grains, whole grains. And then all of a sudden, I was here, and, and there were donuts everywhere, and people would drink these enormous coffee drinks with cream and, and, and sweeteners and these amazing chocolate chip cookies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was a disaster. Within, within a few months, I just could not think straight.
1: So did you quickly fall into that trap of eating those types of food?
2: Yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs>
2: well, sure. And, you know, I was a student. I had no money.
1: Oh, right. I,
2: I can't afford to buy organic apples on a student's salary. I mm-hmm. couldn't. And so I, I did, I did. I think, what, what everybody else does. You eat at the local cafeteria or basically they load you up on, on cookies. And and within just a matter of months, I just couldn't work. I just could not function. I was constantly tired. I was. I was having sugar crashes all the time. I just... My attention span was was dramatically reduced. I, I was used to maybe working twelve hours straight without problems of so reading and doing statistical analysis and memorizing and looking at scans, and I could barely make it through an hour. Wow! And yes, yeah, and I never thought that it that it was my diet causing the problems. And when I realized that, I was like, "Ooh, <laughs> this really makes a big difference." So I switched back. And I, I went back to kind of my my original diet and very, very quickly my my brain also started working again. Sure. And that's what got me to think about nutrition and cognitive decline because I was really experiencing, you know, my my performance was was not what it used to be and it was very strange for me.
1: Yeah, and that's that's one of the things I want to talk about. And then I, I was curious what got you interested in Alzheimer's, but it sounds like that experience with your grandmother was a trigger for that.
2: Also, um, I think it was mostly by chance. I I was doing my fellowship and my clinical fellowship in, neuro, in neurology and nuclear medicine as well. I forgot that part. And they just got a huge grant to look at Alzheimer's and specifically early detection of Alzheimer's disease because... You can, you can use brain imaging to look at people's brains when, you know, when they're in their 40s and 50s and show that they do have Alzheimer's pathology in their brains, they just don't show the symptoms. Mm. And I thought it was incredible and that's how it started.
3: Gotcha. And
2: then my grandma and grandmother also started showing symptoms that really made it real in some ways, it wasn't just research. It was more like, oh, this, this is potentially very helpful.
1: When we see outsiders see, people who buy your books see someone who has done as much work as you, who's written this great book, who's gone through all the schooling, it almost seems like a path that you knew from an early age, which is difficult for many of us. But what I find is when I ask, it oftentimes isn't that. You just kind of followed some intuition. So when you go back to the idea of, yeah, the first thing I wanted to study was, you know, neuroscience and experimental psychology. What triggered that interest? Or, or take me back to that moment.
2: I think, okay, so <laughs> my parents are nuclear physicists, both of them. Well, then. My mom, I know. Yeah, exactly. So I grew up thinking about physics and nuclear stuff, like Pretty much from the moment I was born, I, I was on, I was the only kid in school who did not know who Cinderella was, but I knew who Einstein was. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. And my mom is a—they're both professors at the university. My parents, and they teach nuclear physics. And my mom was also uh, teaching students who then switched to medicine. And so they became professors in nuclear medicine or technicians in nuclear medicine, and they used to babysit me when I was little. Mm. So you know, that was my—I was very used to to that idea, and I always thought it was it was beautiful. It's just amazing. I—I I mean, just the idea that we can look at people's brains, you know, who can do that? Nobody can do it. You right, need to right. have the tools and. Yeah. and at some point I thought that maybe I would be a psychiatrist. And then I realized, nah, not for me. Yeah. Not for me. I'm more into I I just enjoy biology.
1: Yeah. I well,
2: mean I, I sound like a total nerd.
1: No. <laughs> Well, this is why I love talking to people like yourself and I, because I made a mistake. I mean, I, I just, I should have gone that route. I am so fascinated. It's one of the only things I can read about and study for hours on end. Yeah, I, I think you did it right. I'm glad that you're sharing it with
3: us. <laughs> Thank you.
1: So let's talk about this. This idea that food, it really breaks down to chemistry. I find that yeah. intriguing on a number of levels. One being it seems a bit obvious now, right, because we've broken food down into such a uh, so many pieces. You've got your macronutrients and your micronutrients and and all these chemicals. And we, we think about it that way. On the flip side, it seems like anytime we try to break something like food down to its nutrient level, we get it wrong. We don't yeah. go small enough. We can't fully grasp the intricacies. Where do you think we fall on that knowledge spectrum of what food really is and how much we know about it?
2: I think we know a lot about food and nutrients. Um, I also think we don't translate the knowledge into actionable items that always make sense. And I will clarify that. So for research, you look at both. You look at food groups, and you look at micro and macronutrients and their interactions and how they together influence brain health and we we have really we know a lot about how food influences human physiology and genetics as well then what happens is that somehow diet and nutrition gets treated a little bit like fashion and what happens is that people go on very extreme diets. Sometimes and sometimes these diets are not really fully supported by science. Like I think there's a little bit of a of a disconnect between the science behind nutrition and what people get to hear about and then implement in their lives. And as a scientist, that's that's upsetting in some ways. You know, and I really thought about it and I I thought why is it that So many people are confused about diets, whereas scientists are not. And I I think the problem is that the work of scientists is very often confined to academic and medical journals that literally sit behind a paywall, and nobody can afford to read those papers. And also, you know, if you can't afford it, you probably not understand them because they're very complicated. And so scientists are not very good at communicating outside of academia. And there are people who are very good at, at reading the research and reporting on the research. But then sometimes things just get a little bit out of, in, out of control. Like three years ago, everybody was vegan. And now everybody's eating fat and everybody's terrified of grains. Those are very extreme approaches. Whereas I think any scientist would tell you that biology doesn't work that way. Biology is all about harmony and balance and trying to find an equilibrium and maintaining the equilibrium.
1: You just touched on two of the key things, the fat and the grains that I really want to uncover. But I think before we get into, because we can spend, again, seven episodes on the the tips and the recommendations, and I want to get to those. But what I first want to uncover is how does food directly impact the health of the brain and... Mm -hmm. Is that different than how food impacts the health of the overall body
2: oh yes yes for sure so what was very helpful to me uh, to understand as a neuroscientist and nutritionist is that the, the nutritional needs of the brain are very different from those of the body if you eat right for your brain your body will be fine but you need to optimize for brain nutrition in order to really support the health of your brain. The other way around doesn't work. And uh, I'll give you an example of this, Uh, fat. Actually, fat is a very good example of that. Um, So this is the way the brain works. The brain is an organ that is perhaps the most precious organ in the body. And nature defined it as being such by creating a very strong protection system around the brain that other organs just don't have. It's basically like the brain has walls or barriers all around it, and it's called the blood-brain barrier. And this barrier is in charge of determining which substances and molecules and nutrients can get inside the brain and which substances and molecules and nutrients cannot get inside the brain. And it does so by opening and closing gates. literally there are some doors or gates everywhere in this barrier that the brain itself opens when it needs food and then shuts them down when it doesn't need any more food so basically brain nutrition uh is up to the brain not up to us Mm -hmm. as much so that was the first part now for instance an example is, is is fat everybody says to me like all the patients recently were like Okay, so I understand from the internet, of course, that the brain is made of fat. And so I need to eat a lot of fat to replenish the fat that is inside the brain. Is that right? And they're like, no, it's not right. Mm -hmm. And let me tell you why not. So when we think about fat, number one, fat isn't just fat. Fat is many, many different kinds of fat. And the ones that we usually think about are cholesterol, you know, everybody says to me, Well, the brain uh, has a lot of cholesterol. Yes, it does. That is true. But the brain doesn't use the cholesterol from the diet. The brain makes its own cholesterol when we're babies, and that's it. So, this is how it works. So, sorry, I'm going to take a step back. So, no, the, major kinds of, <laughs> the major kinds of fat are cholesterol, saturated fat, or triglycerides and polyunsaturated fat. There's also monounsaturated fat, but let's do do the first three. So cholesterol cannot ever get inside your brain. It just can't. There are no gates for cholesterol in the blood-brain barrier. The brain doesn't want it. And the reason it doesn't want it is that cholesterol plays the role of support. It's like a scaffolding for the brain. So the brain needs to make its own cholesterol when we're babies, as neurons, as brain cells are developing inside the brain. So the brain literally makes its own cholesterol when we're babies. And as soon as we're adolescents, it just stops making cholesterol, pretty much. And it will never, whatever cholesterol is inside your brain doesn't leak, or if it does, it's just very, very, is negligible, the amount. But no cholesterol from the diet will ever get inside your brain, one. Two, <laughs> Satur- saturated fat. Saturated fat is pretty much the same as cholesterol. The brain needs it when we're babies. And in this case, the brain makes a lot of its own uh, internally and takes up some from the bloodstream. And this goes on all the way throughout adolescence. Now, when we're grown-ups, and the brain stops making neurons, it doesn't need saturated fat as much. And so it takes up very, very small amounts once in a while. But it's really, when we look at that with brain imaging, uptake is is minimal to negligible. So the only kind of fat that we have to continuously eat so that the brain can use it is polyunsaturated fat. That means the omega-3s and omega-6 and omega-9 fatty acids that are found, for instance, in fish. Fish is a very good source of omega-3 fatty acids that the brain wants and needs and uh, takes up from the bloodstream like constantly. Does that answer the question? It, was it so much? Y-
1: yes. No, no, no. I, I, oh my gosh. I have so many things running through my head. Okay. Let's start okay. here. So because a lot of what you're saying goes against everything I've heard when diving <laughs> in and and right. e- even well, you have to be dealing with a lot of pushback. Yes. Like I think about we had a guy who's really well known. His name's Dr. Daniel Amen. Again, a lot of credentials. And he talked mm-hmm. about, well, you got to eat healthy fat because the brain is 60 percent fat, I think is what it was. Right. Um, and you're kind of saying, well, no, that's not true.
2: Well, it depends. What, what does he mean by healthy? Maybe he means the polyunsaturated fats.
1: Yeah, like fish. Right.
2: So, yeah.
1: So, you're saying that eating certain types of fat do go to the brain, but then the fats like cholesterol and saturated fats don't and therefore aren't useful necessarily for the brain?
3: Yes. Okay. Exactly.
1: Now, yes. what about the body? Like, tell us about the difference because I've heard a lot about cholesterol recently. Um, I'm reading a book by uh, Dr. Natasha Campbell. It's about the GAPS diet. I don't know if you're familiar with that. She talks about, yeah, you should eat four egg yolks a day, minimum as an adult. The cholesterol is great. And every cell in our body uses cholesterol. And so I understand that idea about the the barrier and cholesterol not getting into the brain. But what about the cells of the body? Is there a difference in the needs that that has?
2: Yes, there is a need. Uh, Cholesterol is used in... Much well, the, the cholesterol is needed in the rest of the body for many things, including uh, hormone production. I, I don't know if you necessarily need to eat four eggs a day. That, that sounds like a lot of eggs.
3: Right, 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 right.
2: <laughs> but so the major difference, I think, is that the rest of your body can burn fat to make energy, whereas the brain cannot. So. For the other organs in the body, fat is not, doesn't just have a structural support, but also has an energy, has an energetic function. So other cells in the body can burn fat through a mechanism that is called beta oxidation, that converts fat into energy and produces ATP. Whereas the brain is not able to do that. The brain can only pretty much by and large can only burn glucose to produce
1: energy. So which is why we crave simple sugars. Yes. Okay. What are your recommendations then? Because it sounds like feeding the body and feeding the brain are really two separate tasks, if you will. And so how do we integrate the two given that we need to feed both?
2: I I think as long as you eat for your brain, you're also eating for the rest of the body. Like cholesterol, for instance, doesn't just come from eggs. It comes from fish, for instance, right? Mm -hmm. So if you eat fish, you're going to make both your brain and your body happy. Eggs, I don't think you need to overeat for your body in general, but a couple of eggs here and there are good for you. Actually, eggs are a source of many nutrients besides cholesterol. And many of the nutrients are good for your brain.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Like, for instance, eggs are very rich in B vitamins. And B vitamins are really good for the brain as well. Like, choline is a very important B vitamin that we don't get to talk about as much. But is actually needed uh, by the brain to literally make memories. Do you know how, do you know how that works?
3: No, I'd love to how hear it? Oh.
2: it, though. Oh, good. So, The brain uses neurotransmitters, and neurotransmitters are chemicals that literally jump from neuron to neuron, from brain cell to brain cell, carrying information throughout the body. And they're very specialized. So some neurotransmitters like serotonin keep you happy and make you sleep. Then there's a neurotransmitter called dopamine that is responsible for movements, for coordinated movements, and also for um, reward-oriented behaviors, like when you play video games. For and then there's a neurotransmitter that is called acetylcholine that is needed uh, to make memories in the brain. And if you think about it, acetylcholine means there's a sugar that gives you the acetyl group and a molecule of choline and choline or choline in English. Yeah, <laughs> I I call it, I've heard of it, Coleen. <laughs> Coleen, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> choline. Yeah, choline in but it, it's a B vitamin, and the B vitamin needs to come from food. And then the brain takes these two things and puts puts them together and creates the neurotransmitter that gives you memories. So a lot of what's going on inside your brain is really based on food. Hmm. And as neuroscientists, we don't necessarily think about it as food, but the only source of B vitamin you know, is from food. Food is the only source of B vitamins. So.
1: You know, it's funny you say that because... Everybody has heard of dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, you know, norepinephrine or epinephrine and and all that. You never hear of choline or acetylcholine ever.
2: Well, I mean, (laughs) it's not it's not as
1: I mean, speaking from kind of that, again, outsider perspective.
2: Yes. And it's very strange to me because, you know, we're we're an aging population and we're facing um, an epidemic of Alzheimer's disease. We now have five million patients with Alzheimer's in in the United States alone, and we think, the estimates say that we're going to reach close to 15 million by the year 2050, and the only drugs available for Alzheimer's are based on acetylcholine.
3: Hmm. Yeah. Wow.
2: Yes, a common symptom of Alzheimer's is that patients don't remember things and they have a lot of trouble with memory. And so what these drugs do is that they tend to potentiate the action of acetylcholine in the brain. There are uh, recent statistics that I would say up to 80% of Americans are actually deficient in choline.
0: And now a quick word from this week's sponsor. This week's episode is brought to you by Casper Mattresses. Casper is a sleep brand that continues to revolutionize its line of products to create an exceptionally comfortable sleep experience one night at a time. With three mattress models, the original Casper, the Wave, and the Essential, Casper mattresses are perfectly designed to soothe and cradle your natural geometry. Not to mention, the breathable design helps you sleep cool and regulates your body temperature throughout the night. And it's delivered right to your door in a small, how did they do that, sized box with free shipping and returns in the U.S. and Canada, but the best part is, is that you can be sure of your purchase with Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep on it trial. After all, you spend one-third of your life sleeping, so you should be comfortable. Get $50 towards select mattresses by visiting Casper.com/smart and using SMART at checkout. That's Casper.com/smart, offer code SMART. For $50 off your mattress purchase. Terms and conditions apply. And now back to the episode. Okay.
1: Now let's, I guess we have to, we have to ask then how do we increase our choline intake?
2: Well, so there are many ways to do that. And a good part of that is um, by eating foods that contain it. And like, for instance, we just mentioned fish, fish Mm -hmm. is a very good source, Um, eggs. Are actually, also another very, very good source. And let me see. There are many. Um, peanuts yeah. are also good sources of choline. Uh, I would say, actually, going back to um, eggs, they're, they're an excellent, excellent source. Also, spinach, beets, uh, grains like wheat, shellfish, those are all good sources.
1: Okay, so we'll add those in and we're going to get some specific diet tips from you towards the end here, but I got to keep going with this. So, This glucose, this idea of glucose is fascinating to me because it is bastardized. Everybody hates glucose and myself, myself (laughs) included. So like I'm always tweaking and and trying things and because, okay, here's the deal. I have a wicked sweet tooth and I hate it and I want it to go away. So I've been really digging into the microbiome and how what you eat grows certain bacterias and they're going to want simple sugars, and that's why you have cravings. So I've been on this almost no sugar diet for three to four weeks, feel pretty awesome, added some fruits back in. But now you're telling me, well, look, you you need the glucose for your brain. And so what I'm wondering is, if it were up to our brain, could we just eat sugar, like eat honey, right? Like like a cup of honey a day and be good to go?
2: No, there's more to the brain than just glucose. I I think um, glucose serves two very important functions in the brain. The first function is that the brain, um, the typical brain (laughs) under normal physiological conditions uses sugar, uses glucose, not white sugar. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. glucose is a very specific kind of glucose as the main uh, energy source. And uh, up to 99% of brain energy is actually derived from glucose usually. Because also, like we were saying, the brain cannot burn fat for energy. Mm -hmm. But the thing that I find a lot of people haven't heard about it, don't don't realize perhaps, is that um, glucose is converted into a lot of things besides energy in the brain. So we were talking about the neurotransmitters. And so the main neurotransmitter in brain is called glutamate, and 90% of all brain synapses are glutamatergic and excitatory, basically anything that activates your brain needs glutamate in the brain. And whenever you need to stop, you need to turn glutamate into another neurotransmitter that is called GABA. Now, the thing is that these neurotransmitters need glucose just to be formed inside the brain. So glutamate is made from glucose. You need to have a molecule of glucose inside your brain for astrocytes to convert it into glutamate and glutamate is needed by 90% of your brain any minute of any day. Mm. You know, you can't use something else. You have to use the glucose. And this is you know, this is very basic neuro- neurochemistry, but I, I find sometimes when we try to apply the neurochemistry to the field of nutrition and diet, we tend to to just look at one aspect of the story instead of the big picture. Right. The you know, the brain took millions of years to evolve. And nature has decided that glucose is important for the brain. And somehow we tend to humanize biology, right, by taking sides and saying, oh, glucose is bad for you, or gluten is bad for you, or something else is bad for you, and just try to avoid something that took millions of years to just select Mm -hmm. (laughs) as a good thing. Yeah. So it's a little strange for me as a scientist.
1: Yeah, and that's what I want to get into. So if you could explain to us really how glucose is different from something like just sugar or why it's not bad from a chemical standpoint, and where do we get it from? What are the good sources of glucose?
2: Yeah, that's a a good question. So here's the thing. Um, There are many, many different types of sugars. In nature, there are very little sugars like monosaccharides, like glucose. Uh, and then there are more complex sugars like disaccharides, oligosaccharides, polysaccharides. Um, the brain needs glucose, perhaps because it's the smallest version, it's the simplest form of sugar. And um, the body can convert other sugars into glucose, but that is a little taxing on the liver. So what I think what most people would suggest is to optimize the diet for foods that contain glucose and minimize other forms of sugar that are not as healthful, but actually can also increase your insulin levels in the body, uh, give you insulin resistance and increase inflammation. And the, the thing is that, you know, everybody would say, well, but glucose is a sugar. And they would say, yes, but... Food that are rich in glucose are not necessarily sweet. Mm. So, right. So the best sources of sugar are not obvious. Oh, glucose are not necessarily obvious. Like onions are an excellent source. The ratio of glucose to other sugars is very, very high in favor of glucose when you're eating onions or turnips or something called the rutabaga. Which I had never heard about until I moved here. <laughs> uh, red beets, red beets are incredible sources of glucose. Just one small red beet alone contains thirty percent of all the glucose that you need for the day. Wow! Yeah, and then there are fruits, of course, like kiwi fruit, uh, grapes, dates are good sources of of glucose. And then sweeteners, like if you need to sweeten something. I would choose either honey or maple syrup or coconut sugar, which are quite rich in glucose and less rich in other forms of sugars like fructose.
1: And and the main reason glucose is better than fructose is because it doesn't have to be converted by the liver. Is that the idea?
2: Right. It doesn't have to be converted. And also, um, it does not create inflammation. So the way that the body burns different substrates to... um, to generate energy is that you can either I don't want to do too much biochemistry, but
1: no, no, please so, do, go for it. Yeah,
2: so what happens is that uh, glucose is taken up in cells and then is transported into mitochondria. And mitochondria, actually, first of all, is is broken down um, into smaller substrate. The glucose is called is is phosphorylated, and then. Um, you get to a point where pyruvate, basically derivative to glucose, gets into the mitochondria for energy production. When you burn fat or other substances, the process is not as efficient, and so cells, yes, they do produce energy, but they also produce more free radicals mm. at the same time, and free radicals increase oxidation throughout the body, and oxidation increases inflammation, and inflammation is bad for you universally.
1: Right. So when
2: people say you shouldn't eat that much sugar, they mean white sugar, like white sugar, white bread, white pasta, uh, baked goods. These foods contain a lot of refined sugars. And the problem with refined sugars is that they really create inflammation in your body, whereas um, more natural and more gentle forms of sugar do not, because they don't impact your insulin levels as much. And that's usually uh, sugars that come from complex carbohydrates, like, uh, for instance, grains, but also, I'd say, sweet potatoes.
1: Quick question: Are sweet potatoes good for you? Yes, yes, and
2: I will I will tell you why. Actually, they they have a really good balance of fiber to sugar, so they don't impact your blood sugar levels as much, and they're also very rich in antioxidant nutrients like vitamin A or beta carotene, and so. If you think about uh, longevity, there are there are literally communities of centenarians all over the world, and one of these communities that is very famous is in Japan. I don't know if you heard about the, the Okinawa. blue zones. Yes, yeah. one of the blue zones is in Japan, uh, in an island called Okinawa, mm-hmm. and they're very famous for the purple sweet potato. So they eat sweet potatoes constantly and especially a kind of sweet potato that is purple, like a really, really dark purple. Mm. And that pigment that gives the potato that beautiful purple hue is also really strong antioxidant, like very similar to the anthocyanins that we get in cherries. You know, they're so dark and they're so good for you because um, those nutrients are also antioxidant and they also have anti-inflammatory properties. So, yes i think sweet potatoes are if you if you feel comfortable eating carbohydrates they're a very good source of carbohydrates
1: but and see this this is the problem though this is what i'm trying to figure out is even when you say if you <laughs> feel comfortable eating carbohydrates like well, you, w- what not. does that mean like yeah. well no i mean of course i am like i love them and the reason i asked specifically about sweet potatoes is again on this this diet thing that i'm doing you can have sweet potatoes. So I've been eating one a night because they're my dessert oh. now. Like I've cut out, <laughs> I, I mean, I've cut out every, every fake sugar there is that just hasn't happened. And I learned that if you bake a sweet potato, the starches mm. convert to sugar more if you bake it low and slow. And so as opposed to if you fry them up real quick, and so they mm. are literally incredibly sweet. So I eat yeah. them and here's what I'm thinking. It's starchy, it's sugary, and there's carbohydrates. This thing must be bad for me, but yeah. they say I can have it, so I'm going to eat it. I can't figure out why that's why it is healthy. Why some people say it's not carbs versus starch? I, I'm so lost.
2: Why? Why would it be bad?
1: Well, because I heard starches get converted into these sugars, and they they spike insulin levels, and then carbs can do the same thing. And they Um, they taste sweet, so they must be bad for you.
2: I don't know. As a scientist, I disagree with that assessment. Everybody has a different response to um, carbohydrates and sugars. So the glycemic response has a very, very variable profile in the population. And some people uh, respond very quickly, so their insulin levels, Uh, Change very quickly accordingly some people are better at metabolizing carbs, and that's really based on your own DNA Mm. There are populations that literally Evolved based on sweet potatoes and tubers and they contain and you know, they their DNA uh, Evolved in such a way they they produce a lot more Enzymes that are able to convert whatever nutrients they find in the sweet potatoes into health literally so in part is your own body's response to the foods you to the foods you eat and in part is your overall diet. So if you are if you have diabetes, then yes, you need to be careful with, with carbohydrates because you're predisposed to insulin problems inside your body.
3: Mm-hmm. If
2: you're not a diabetic, if you're not pre diabetic either, then complex carbohydrates I didn't see why they would be best for
1: you. You know, the, the thing I'm trying to uncover and thinking about literally turning this into a new total podcast is because <laughs> there's so much out there in a perfect world. We would take every expert in the world, put their information side by side, determine which ones are right and, and have mm-hmm. this knowledge. Right. And so yeah. I'm not saying that my my fear is rational of carbs, sugar, anything that tastes sweet. Uh, mm-hmm. That's that's why I have people like you on.
2: <laughs> right. It does. I think. I think something that usually gets lost in these conversations is uh, quality. Right. We we don't focus on the quality of the foods we eat or the quality of the nutrients we eat and mm-hmm. how close to nature they really are. We, as a society, we we tend to eat an enormous amount of processed food, and I personally have a lot of issues with with processed food and refined. Grains and sugars and refined oils all all the manipulations, all the chemical rearrangements that man introduces into the foods we eat are not necessarily safe there is there is not a lot of research done on it, but i I think there's a there's there's a good reason to make a distinction between healthy carbohydrates and unhealthy carbohydrates and the word. Healthy and unhealthy is a very human extrapolation of something that is not inherently, it, it's neither good nor bad, it's just something that happens in nature. Right. And we do know that refined sugars are, are absorbed in the, in the bloodstream much faster. Now, if you were starving, that would be a good thing. It wouldn't be unhealthy,
3: mm-hmm.
2: right? The problem is that we eat way too much of those sugars, they make us fat. Mm-hmm. And not enough of the sugars that make us smart. You know, we as a population, we're just completely out of balance with our diet. We eat too much, we eat too often, and we eat foods that are just not the foods we're supposed to eat. Right. So I think it's much more than just, oh, glucose is bad for you. No, it's not glucose. We need to put that into context.
1: You mentioned something there about its impact on blood sugar and then people can uh, digest or process foods differently based on their genes. Do you have any tips or recommendations on how to find out which diet works for you or which things Uh, work for you? And the reason I ask is because I've always said like I have an iron stomach. I can go live. (laughs) I can live off pasta for a month. I can (laughs) I can drink a venti dark roast with seven espressos. I I'm otherwise healthy, but I want to make sure I'm doing the right things. And it's hard to know what those are when you're not, you know, your body doesn't scream at you when you eat the one wrong food.
2: Yes. Yes. I think that's um, that's a really good point. And it's even more difficult when you're thinking about brains. Right. Because <laughs> right. As, a, as a society, we're used to we're comfortable with the idea that we feed our bodies and that if we eat the wrong foods, eventually we will get fat. And we realized that they were doing something wrong. But we're less comfortable with the idea that we feed our brains at the same time. Because the brain, you just, just can't see it. And that's why it's so important for me in my research that we are able to do brain imaging. And correlate your diet with the health of your brain the minute you walk in the door. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think researching that. Respect is still growing. There are more and more people who are interested in doing this. And when I started using brain imaging to look at diet and, and nutrition, everybody thought me I would everybody said I was crazy. they was just kind of wasting money. And now more and more people are actually interested in doing that and they're trying to to raise funds to do it. So we need more research. But what I can tell you is what we know so far. And it's not just my work, but it's also the work of several of my colleagues who were able to look at diet and some kind of biological parameters that that matters for the brain, and uh, there's there's pretty much consensus that a Mediterranean style diet is actually very good for your brain. Mm-hmm. And we have shown, we have published this in good journals that there are strong correlations between certain nutrients and brain health, and that other nutrients seem to have a negative effect on the health of your brain, measured as brain activity, like how active your brain is, and uh, how structurally solid your brain is, like is your brain shrinking? Because if your brain is shrinking, that's not good for you, right? And what kind of foods make your brain shrink? And what kind of foods prevent your brain from shrinking? That's the kind of research that we and others have been doing. Um, And it looks like this is just Summary version of, of a lot of work. But, uh, oh, yeah. So, right. So the good nutrients, and again, good is a very human uh, mm-hmm. word to use, but nutrients that seem to support the health of your brain are antioxidant vitamins like vitamin A, vitamin C, vitamin E, uh, B vitamins. B vitamins like the choline that we, meant, we mentioned before, and then vitamin B12 and folate, that's vitamin B9,
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh, omega 3 fatty acids and especially the ratio of omega-6 to omega-3. If you had a lot of omega-6 and not enough omega-3s, then your diet is pro-inflammatory, so you want to revert the ratio to favor the omega-3s, and that would be an anti-inflammatory diet. And I think these are the nutrients, and beta-carotene also is a, is a good antioxidant that comes mostly from plants.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And the nutrients that are negatively related with the health of your brain uh, in our hands and other people's hands, are fat, fatty acids like saturated fat, trans saturated fat, uh, to some extent cholesterol. In some studies, uh, and too much sodium and too much iron, copper, and zinc. Right. I'm in trouble.
1: I like I <sighs> like salt. Here's the thing. Okay, so when you say saturated fat, what about something like coconut oil, which is just getting all the play in the world right now? Yeah. You know, go drink because your I coconut oil. That,
2: yeah. Oh dear. Um. So. I love coconut oil. I use it in my cooking and for two reasons. Number one, it really it can take a lot of heat. So the smoke point is relatively high, so it's a very good oil for baking. Right. And it tastes good. And the other thing about coconut oil is that so it, it's a fat. It's a source of fat. It contains a lot of saturated fat. But Specifically, the kind of saturated fat has a good ratio of medium-chain triglycerides to other kinds of saturated fat. So saturated fat, chemically, is defined by the length of the fatty acid molecule. You can have like a short chain, a medium chain, or a long chain. And usually, short-chain and medium-chain triglycerides are better for you than the longer ones. They're easier to metabolize, and they're not they don't impact your cholesterol levels as much. And so coconut oil is a good source of these medium chain triglycerides. And one of the reasons that I like it is that I'm a mom and my daughter is two, two and a half, and her brain is still developing. So she needs, specifically, she needs uh, medium chain triglycerides that the brain is still taking up from food. So for me, I'd much rather she got this form of fat from plants or fruit, like coconut, than from animal products that I'm not so convinced about. So I, I like the coconut oil as okay. a so, so healthy fats for her.
1: Okay. Um, and it's
2: good for your skin, also. It's very good for your skin.
1: But it is a so, saturated fat, so it, it it's isn't... It's a source of, yeah. So it's not great. It's just mildly harmful? I don't know.
2: It's better than other forms. But no, fat, fat is... is It's helpful to human beings. Um, The point is that, so we as humans, we developed the ability to store and burn fat efficiently a long time ago when we were just developing as humans. So what would that be, like a million years ago? Something like that? (laughs) And back then there were no supermarkets. So the ability to store fat was crucial for survival because in winter it was incredibly hard for our ancestors just to be able to get any food at all. The problem now is that we eat all the time, and we eat fatty foods all the time. So we we literally, we overeat, Mm -hmm. especially fatty foods that we're not supposed to be eating so much of. And going back to to the brain healthy diet, uh, I think most scientists agree that plant-based foods should be a staple in your diet. And animal foods should be more of a treat.
1: Last question. And then I, I just want to get some tips from your, your book and from the diet. But have you heard of or read or know of this book called The Plant Paradox? Have you ever heard of that book? Yeah. No. Okay. The book itself doesn't matter. But there's a guy and there's a number of people that talk about the parts of plants that don't want to be eaten. Right? So, so the lectins. <laughs> sure. You know, the, the idea behind it makes sense, right? Why seeds, why nuts, why uh, legumes are tough to digest? Well, they don't want to be digested. So plants have, over this even longer than humans have been around, have Have created this system which um, is harmful to digestion, primarily supposed to be harmful to bugs that eat them, but has minimal effects, but but does have negative effects on us. Have your research... Looked into any negative effects of plants, specifically when you talk about grains and seeds and, and lectins in general.
2: No, recent, no, not really. We 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 haven't gone that deep for sure. Um, I think what's interesting about plants is that there are parts of the plants, like you said, that are easily digestible, and some parts they're not. Um, but in general, I think that plant based diets are very healthy for you, and they're also really healthy for Digestion as a whole. I think a good trick is to soak.
0: Right, and that's what they say. Yeah.
2: Right. You want to soak them or sprout them, and then they become more easily digestible. And that again is, I think, is, is case by case. It depends on, it depends on your microbiome, to some extent. It depends on the health of your gut, and it depends on what kind of enzymes your DNA is able to produce and how good these enzymes are at metabolizing this food. For some populations, like for instance, um, in Alaska or the North, you know, people like Eskimos who don't really farm, their DNA makes them fantastic at metabolizing and digesting meat, but they have a lot of troubles with grains because they're just not supposed to eat them. You know, they're, they're optimized for a specific diet. I think for the general population, like the American population, we're pretty good at eating a lot of different things.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And plants somehow are not eaten nearly as much as are going back to, to the ancestors uh, used to eat. Like I think many years ago, the typical diet was very high on fiber, like over 50 grams of fiber a day.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And America now is pretty much deficient in fiber. Uh, we, we are among i think we're at the bottom of the list of fiber consuming countries like towards the very bottom like the last 10 on earth and that can be that can be right right a lot of americans have uh, gi issues they have problems with digestion they're constipated or they need to take medicines for ibs i mean so many people have problems with digestion and I, I wonder if the microbiome has something to do with that and the absence of fiber and also uh, oligosaccharides. Have you heard about that?
1: Not really.
2: Mm. So oligosaccharides are very specific uh, sugars that literally feed the bacteria in the gut. So our good bacteria uh, need oligosaccharides to just feed themselves and oligosaccharides are carbohydrates, going back to the carbohydrates, and they're usually contained in plant foods that also are good sources of fiber. For instance, Uh, garlic, these are good sources. Uh, Artichokes are good sources. Wheat is a very good source. Oats are a good source of oligosaccharides.
1: They're good for the microbiome.
2: They are the only source of food for the microbiome, yes. Wow. Yeah.
1: Well, here's what I have to say, Lisa. I know we have to let you go and it's killing me (laughs) because I have so much I want to talk about. But here's where I'm going to leave it first. And this is my last question. Would you please tell us maybe your top three tips for eating for health? However you want to define that, we bring people on such as yourself because you're the expert. So what would you tell people as specific as you can, maybe a few foods to make sure we're incorporating ways of preparing anything? What are your top three?
2: Okay, so my, I, I'm gonna go for foods. Great. Okay, and so the first one actually is not the food. Oh, John, no way, no. I love it. Um, so my number one is drink water. We underestimate how nutritious and how important water is. I, you know, I work, I study brains. So I'm particularly focused on the health of, of our brains as a society and as a country. And the brain is 80% water. You know, when people say, oh, the the brain is 60% fat or this or that, no, the brain is actually 80% water. Once you take the water out, then you have a lot of the other nutrients, but really the brain needs water to function. And the the brain is incredibly sensitive to dehydration and just the minimal loss of water, like two to 4% water loss can cause neurological symptoms like confusion, brain fog, uh, dizziness, reduced attention span, even memory, Uh, like when you can't remember things. Many many, many times people are dehydrated. And even worse than that, prolonged dehydration, even though subclinical, so minimal dehydration, makes your brain shrink. There are studies showing that on brain imaging. And the important thing to know is that a lot of the water that we drink is not really water. So purified water is not water. Club soda is not water. Seltzer is not water. What we mean by water is hard water. So natural spring water with minerals and electrolytes
1: in. So real quick before we go on, a lot of times if you're living in most modern places, it's tough to get that. So are you talking about we have to go kind of to that grocery store and get focus on spring water?
2: So, if you live in a part of the country where tap water is not great and you need to filter that aggressively, it's important to know that the filters also remove the nutrients. In that case, it's really, really important to take mineral supplements and electrolyte supplements. And I'm not talking Gatorade. (laughs)
3: Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Right? So, nothing not nothing with artificial colorings or unnatural substances, but more good rehydration salts. Okay. Okay, so that's the good thing to do. And personally, I invest in uh, spring water once in a while. Okay, you know, if I soda is not cheaper than spring water, so if you drink soda, you may as well get a good, you know, a bottle of good water once in a while. Sure. You know, all the time because actually soda is really not good for you. It's a lot of sugar.
1: (laughs) Right. (laughs) Okay, so drink water.
2: Drink water. My number two tip would be minimize processed foods, fast foods. Fried foods, processed foods, they're just not good for you. They're not good for your body. They're not good for your brain. They create all sort of issues and medical conditions and metabolic disorders, and um, they're also really not good for the brain. Okay. So that would be my number two tip. Go as natural as you can. And one way to do that quickly is to look at the ingredient labels, right? You want to check what's in your food. If you have a lot of names that, that look like chemical substances, that is processed. Right? Yeah. So you want to have just a few ingredients and try to focus on foods that really just have one ingredient or no labels at all, like grapes.
3: Right, right. right.
2: That's all, right. Apples. That's it. That's an apple. And try to make whole foods uh, the major part of your diet. And I'm a mom. I understand how hard it is. Sure. And sometimes how impractical it is. but it's so much better for you to eat an apple than anything else you can give to your, your, your child, basically. Like convenience is not necessarily the same as providing health sure. for your kids or for yourself. Although I completely understand it. It's very hard to, sometimes it would be great to just go like, okay, just have a burger. And that's like, sure. This is my number two. I'm not sure about my number three. I have, a, I have at least 10.
1: Yeah, I know. That's why stuff.
2: <laughs> yeah yeah so oh well i i'm gonna say eat more fish eat more fish eat more fish fish is an excellent source of brain food it really contains all the ingredients that your brain needs or many of the ingredients that your brain needs on, on a daily basis and we don't eat enough hmm. and as a country, so that's why I'm, it's going to be my number three.
1: Well, real quick, what is a good amount of fish? Because you hear so many things, there's, and we don't have time to go into it. But you know, mercury and all this. But what would you recommend? Obviously, wild caught when possible. Uh, we hear these things, but what's a quick recommendation on fish?
2: A quick recommendation. So you don't want to take a loan, right? To just put dinner on the table. So there are kinds of there are some fishes that are not expensive, like sardines,
1: which are shardines. gross. Gross. No, they're not so gross. I can't even. Are you serious? Oh, I mean, I love seafood. Almost every seafood there is, and I can't even smell those things.
2: Really? Yeah. Even even, but they don't really smell to me. What? Uh, I'm surprised. No, but like sardines in olive oil or in water, they don't smell. Come on.
1: uh, (laughs) (laughs) All right. Um, you know what? It's been about a year, or maybe longer, since I've eaten them. So I'll give it another shot because I want to like sardines. Oh my gosh, I would love to.
2: I'll send, I'll send you a link of the ones I buy. Please it, do. It, it don't smell to me.
1: Uh, know. Please yes. do. And I'll provide it to the listeners, too. We'll get that okay. personal recommendation.
2: Okay. Okay. Yeah, we can do that. Definitely. I can send you a link of, of the food that I would that I buy.
1: Yeah, I love On it. Regular
2: basis. Yeah, good. Well, I
1: feel bad because we've taken up so much of your time. But here's the deal, everyone. Like, your book is Brain Food, The Surprising Science of Eating for Cognitive Power. It just came out. Uh, Just a few days ago, incredible book goes through all of this in much more detail. I mean, if you want to learn about, you know, uh, what Lisa thinks about the paleo diet or eating grains (laughs) or gluten or all this stuff, which it's, you know, it's all out there. uh, This book is for you. So we'll link to it. It's on Amazon. I can't thank you more. Is there anything else you'd like to tell our listeners or anywhere else you'd like to guide them? Are you active in social media? Do you write a lot? I mean, where can we learn more?
2: So I have a website um, that is a little bit, you know, every time I write something or I post something, it goes on my website. So I think it would be a good way to keep in touch. And it's uh, lissamascone.com. Okay. So it's easy to remember. And I do have a Twitter account. I, I like Instagram. Okay. So I can find it on Instagram easily, Dr. Moscone, Dr. underscore and Facebook. I have a Facebook page.
1: All right. Well, we will link to all of those, and of course, the thank book you. Brain Food. Lisa, thank you so much for your time. Really well, appreciate it.
2: For you. <laughs> My pleasure.
0: Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Lisa Masconi. Her book, Brain Food, The Surprising Science of Eating for Cognitive Power, can be found at your local bookstore and on Amazon. And as always, if you decide to purchase through Amazon, please make sure to use the Smart People Podcast Amazon link located at smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon. Every purchase you make through that link comes to no extra cost to you, and it greatly helps support the show. If you're looking for other free and easy ways to support the show, Please head over to iTunes or Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or review. As Chris mentioned at the top of the show, we want to hear from you. So if you are a super fan, please reach out to us at smartpeoplepodcast@gmail.com at gmail.com, or you can shoot us a message on Twitter at SmartPeoplePod. Alright, that's it for us this week. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Hope you slap a like on Facebook or Twitter and all that good stuff. Tell some friends about the show as that's the best way to help us grow. We've got some great interviews coming up, so make sure you stay tuned and we will see you all next episode.